Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James Bijan, who is busy constructing a cup of tea, but will join us when that tea is fully constructed. Uh, Brian Motes is, uh, as usual, recording and will be editing and preparing everything for distribution. Uh, welcome, and uh, we're glad you joined us for this podcast. We've been having a, a great time going through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we've been uh, gotten through the first five chapters and uh, finding a lot of material to talk about uh, and uh, a lot of a lot of rich things that we've been able to uh, address here. So uh, I hope you've been enjoying it as well. Today we're talking about chapter six, and uh, chapter six begins uh, a section of Deuteronomy that ends with chapter 11. In the way that I understand it, we might want to talk about this with uh, among ourselves, but the way I understand the, the uh, organization of Deuteronomy from chapter six on, it's organized according to the 10 words, in order of the 10 words, and each section is an expansion and application of uh, one of the 10 words to uh, the the life that Israel is going to live in the land once they enter, pass over the Jordan and enter into the land, and this is the first word. Uh, in some in some commentaries, this section is seen as more of an introductory section, or sometimes even as part of the second word section. But I take chapter six or eleven as the first word section that's focused really on the demand uh, of the first commandment not to have any other gods before Yahweh. And to cling to Yahweh as the exclusive God of Israel and the exclusive source of all good for their life in the land. Chapter 6 or 11 do hang together as a literary unit. Chapter 6 begins with the phrase, now this is the commandment, the rituals and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded. That phrasing of this is the commandment, uh, it comes, uh, comes up again near the end of chapter 11 in verse 22 of chapter 11. The phrase rituals and judgments closes out this section. It's in the very last verse of chapter 11 in verse 32, and then repeated again in uh, the first verse of chapter 12. But so you have a you have an inclusio or a frame around these chapters with this these uh, sets of words. Beyond that, you also have this uh, a uh, repetition of the command to love. Uh, we'll be looking at that today. It's part of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Uh, and uh, that that language is repeated almost verbatim in chapter 11, along with the additions when in chapter 6, when after that commandment, the, the additional command is to teach these things to your sons and to your sons' sons. Talk about them and, uh, when you're sitting down, when you're in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. All that language is reiterated and repeated in chapter 11, beginning in verse 18. And so you have, again, you have a kind of inclusio or a framing around the, these chapters with the emphasis on the, on the demand that uh, Israel is to love the Lord their God. The first word, of course, is a commandment not to have any other gods before Yahweh. Uh, as I said in the last episode, I think the so-called preface to the ten words, I'm Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I believe that declaration about Yahweh is part of the first word. And so there's a reference to the Exodus and also a demand not to have any other gods before the Lord. And uh, both of those themes come up in the course of these chapters. So uh, in chapter 6 there are six through 11, there are 17 references to Egypt, frequent references to slavery in Egypt. Uh, and then in the following chapter, in chapter 12, there aren't any references to Egypt. 
Egypt comes up again in the following chapters, but you have a you have a unit, chapter six or eleven, that repeatedly refers to Egypt and alludes to the exodus from Egypt, the deliverance from slavery. Uh, you also have the phrase "other gods" used uh, a number of times in this section in chapter six or eleven. It's used in chapter six, verse fourteen. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. Uh, and then it's used again uh, very near the end of this section in chapter 11, verse 28. A curse if you don't listen to the commandments of Yahweh your God, but turn aside from the way I'm commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. So again, that's that forms a kind of inclusio, and it's an inclusio that uses language that comes from the first word. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's reiterated in chapter 6. It's reiterated again at the end of chapter chapter 11. And that uh, that identifies this section as a as a first word section of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter six also functions as a as a unit. Uh, you have uh, this commandment. That phrase is used in the very first verse and the very last verse of this chapter. Now this is the commandment, the rituals and the judgments. That's how the chapter begins, and the chapter ends in verse twenty five. It will be righteousness for us if we are uh, if we guard. All this commandment for Yahweh our God, just as He commanded us. So you again, have that inclusio with the phrase "this commandment." Also, at either end of this chapter, you have this emphasis on uh, teaching children, verse two, so that you and your sons and your grandson may fear. The Shema is followed by a command to teach sons, and then the very last section of chapter six is also about teaching sons. What do you say when your son comes to you and asks you what the meaning of the law is? This is what you say. There's kind of a ritual script given, a catechetical script given for Israel. So you have, again, you have this, uh, uh, within chapter six, you have an inclusio with these different phrases uh, and this emphasis on teaching sons that uh, that marks this out as a, as a distinct section within the larger section of chapters six through 11. Yeah, notice also that those, uh, everything you mentioned is repeated in chapter 11 as well. So that that is further proof, I think, that 6 through 11 is one section. Even the mention of milk and honey, not mentioned really un, uh, after verse 6-3 until chapter 11. Uh, so there's a lot to commend the reading of this 6 through 11 as one, one section, one, um, one sermon, if you will, on the first word. One of the things we've commented on already, and I suppose we will continue to as we go through Deuteronomy, is the the role that Moses plays as teacher. He's authorized, according to verse 1 of chapter 6, to teach Israel, and um, uh, he's already he's already mentioned that role. That what, what the Lord commands him, he passes on to Israel, and what he teaches them is to guide them when they go into the land. If they follow his teaching, if they hear his teaching, if they obey what he teaches— then they will things will go well with them and they'll prosper in the land. But uh, I think that there's a there's a really interesting it'd be, be an interesting study just to follow out the way that Moses describes his teaching and the effects that he's trying to achieve by his teaching. He's we've already seen that a couple of times in the previous chapters, but it's in, intriguing to me in verses one and two here of chapter six. Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you that you might do these things, these commandments in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son's son and your son's sons might fear Yahweh your God to guard his uh, rituals and commandments. 
or maybe that's judgments and commandments, which I command you. So what that indicates is that Moses' goal in teaching is not simply to communicate rules. Uh, It's not to communicate information. He's doing both, obviously. He's teaching them rules that will guide their behavior. And already he's talked a lot about uh, what's happened in Israel's past. He's trying to remind them of of their history and the, the experiences that they had at Sinai and in the wilderness and so on. So he's communicating information. But here, the emphasis is on the, uh, first of all, on teaching in order to produce teachers. He teaches Israel so that Israel could become teachers. And then what's passed on is the fear of Yahweh in verse 2. So Moses' aim in teaching is to perpetuate a kind of emotional tenor. It's spiritual. It's not just emotional, but there's an emotional dimension to it. He's trying to pass on the experience of fear that they had at Sinai so that the same fear that they had in the response to the Lord's words at Sinai is perpetuated through generations. That's part of the purpose of teaching. I think, again, uh, part of a study of teaching in the book of Deuteronomy would be a, a study of preaching and what what we're aiming at when we're uh, as pastors, when we're preaching preaching in the church. We're aiming to communicate information. We're giving rules to people. We're, uh, we're uh, reminding them of what God has done for them in Christ. But part of what we're trying to communicate is a kind of emotional atmosphere, a, a tonality to the church that will not only be the tonality of individual lives, but the tonality of the community. Now, what we want to produce is a community that fears God and individuals that fear God, and that's communicated by teaching. And that's fascinating, Peter. I think that's that would be a great study. And the effective tone is both, verse 2, fear, and we've seen fear uh, in the previous chapter leading up to this, but also verse 5, love. It's um, surely instructive that here, you know, Moses' intent is that the people and their and the sons and the sons' sons would fear Yahweh, but then when you get the Shema, Immediately, that's followed by love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind. And there doesn't appear to be a dichotomy between the emotion of fear and also love. Well, love doesn't have to be just an emotion, but it, it, there's certainly an a, a affection as a part of, uh, of love beyond doubt. But it's... So if you're thinking about the church and you're thinking about pastors, you're thinking about leaders or even fathers and mothers or Sunday school teachers, whatever, and they're teaching, how do we embody through our words, through our actions, through the environment, through the architecture that we uh, we create, uh, through the liturgy, how do we create an atmosphere that would communicate the importance of fearing God, but also of loving him. Yeah, that would be a, a fascinating study. It's very easy going to the New Testament to think that Christ is um, creating some sort of completely new system for understanding the law when he talks about the two great commandments, the greatest being the statement that he takes from Deuteronomy 6 concerning loving the Lord your God. And then the other one from Leviticus 19 verse 18 about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's very clear that these are giving us something of the inner logic of the law. It's very 
important to notice the contrast between the fact that the law is mostly expressed in terms of prohibitions, you shall not, um, certainly the commandments one to three and then um, six to ten have that form. And yet here we have a positive injunction to love, and that is the true fulfillment of the law, as Paul talks about in Romans 12 and elsewhere. The law is comprehended in the reality of love. And within that understanding of love as the fulfillment of the law, we're following a train of thought that I think even the commandments themselves invite, as by the 10th commandment, we've been brought to reflect upon the inner state of the heart and, and its desire as the root of the sins that are described beforehand. And so what is the alternative route that will provide the basis for the fulfillment of the law? Well, it's clearly as described in um, chapter six, it's that heart posture of love. Out of that will flow the proper um, obedience of the Lord that is um, always called for. Always alert to numerological connections. I noted that uh, verse five contains 10, 10 words in the Hebrew text. The command to love is, uh, is, is a 10-word command. Uh, which links it up numerically, of course, with the 10 words. Jeff, I, I wanted to pick up on something you said. I think you're absolutely right that the command to love includes affection and uh, desire. I mean, one, way to, one way to make that point, well, we can make the point simply by going to chapter 11, where this is reiterated, and uh, where, again, uh, Israel is told to love the Lord their God and also to walk in his ways and hold fast to him, to cling to him. That's the word that's used back in Genesis 2 to describe the man clinging to his wife. So it's a it's a term of marriage and suggests that the covenant that's made between Yahweh and Israel is a marital covenant that includes not only uh, not only service and loyalty, but also affection and desire and uh, and attachment. When preparing for this podcast, I was kind of I was kind of uh, surprised to find that that's been uh, disputed. That effective aspect of love has been disputed by commentators on Deuteronomy for the last several decades, and the emphasis has been placed on love as a covenant category, uh, based on parallels with uh, like uh, ancient Near Eastern suzerainty treaties. Vassals are supposed to love their uh, love their lords. You, you find this usage of love in uh, you know in, in medieval medieval feudal relations. The uh, the vassal swears loyalty and love for his lord. That doesn't mean he has affection necessarily, or in you know Shakespeare sometimes uses love in these kind of political or covenant contexts. But I think um, in Deuteronomy, it's I think it's got to include this affective and emotional component. The fact that it's love with the whole heart and with the whole soul suggests there's an inner inner drive. The fact that they're supposed to cleave to the Lord. The way that Deuteronomy describes the Lord's own love for Israel uses language of desire and longing for Israel. The Lord longed for the fathers, and so he set his love on them, and so he chose them. Uh, and Israel is supposed to respond in kind with the same kind of love. So um, I think, yeah, that's I think that's got to be a, that's got to be an, a component, an aspect of the love that we have for God. But I just wanted to, wanted to make the point that that's that's been disputed. And it's all, I mean, it's obviously the case that it has other dimensions to it, the loyalty and service, uh, worship, fear, all those things are aspects of the love that we're to have for God. But uh, 
uh, affection for him and devotion to him and passion for him are part of it. I was thinking about this recently um, in reflecting upon the character of David, who, of course, his name means beloved. The story of David is the story of one who wins the hearts of people. He's loved by um, all the people in Saul's house, including initially Saul himself. And he's loved by the people and everyone. Uh, their hearts are set upon him. But yet he's also portrayed as the lover. And in David, and particularly, I think, in his expressions of love for the Lord in the Psalms, what we see is this intent of the law moving towards love, arriving at its proper expression. And so David expresses something in the Psalms, especially something of the true posture of heart that was always desired by the commandments and yet was not realized earlier on. Um, and so I think there's a, a mature sense of the purpose of the law that we see later on that helps us to read this command here and see what it is actually about and clearly includes a pronounced effective aspect. Well, the Shema also seems to indicate that uh, Israel's the bride of her one Lord, uh, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, he's the only one. I don't think this is primarily like a metaphysical or ontological statement about the unity of God, but he's the one and only God for Israel. Uh, he's he's the husband and him alone. So then you move direct, if that's the case, and you move directly in verse five into this really, as Peter said, marital kind of language here, and you love God, it's a whole soul, it's all inclusive, it's total, it's the whole person, it's heart soul and mind and and you know we're not meant to divide those up into some kind of parts of the human person or anything like that that's not the idea at all you're not dissecting the human being into into parts but that includes everything and if this is indeed Yahweh the divine husband with his bride Israel his wife then the love the one flesh relationship between the two is not going to be reduced to affection and emotions, but it it can't exclude that. It can't just be a mechanistic or a uh, legal kind of relationship. Uh, it has to be more than that, especially given the language of verse five. Yeah, the last term in that list is intriguing. Um, it's uh, it's the typically the, the word that's typically translated as very uh it's usually an adverb in the hebrew uh me'od it's used a handful of times in the hebrew bible uh in in a substantive way as it is here in verse 5 but it's uh, you know if you want it to be really literal uh, love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your veriness <laughs> whatever that means with all your excessiveness, with all the uh, with all that you have, I think the Septuagint translates it as dunamis, so uh, as power. Jesus translated with a similar word that means might or strength. So I think the the translation as might or strength is a proper one. And but not, as I started uh, kind of contemplating what that might involve, what does it mean to love God with your strength? You know, you have you have physical strength, so you use your physical strength. Your bodies are devoted to uh, loving God. You have uh, mental and intellectual powers that you devote to loving God, and that's explicit in when Jesus 
when Jesus talks about this, he introduces the idea of loving God with your mind. So there's a, there's a mental dimension, but um, not necessarily this word that's being used, but when the, when the, uh, when the Hebrew Bible talks about might or prowess or um, men of substance, men of valor, sometimes it's not just, it's not talking about military or physical power, but about kind of social and economic power. So Boaz is a man of valor, even though we, we never see him fighting. We see him as a landowner who's acting justly in the way that he manages his land. He's feeding, feeding the widow. Uh, he's uh, protecting her. Uh, he's, he's a man of valor because, uh, uh, because he's a man of substance, material substance, but also spiritual and moral substance. So if you start thinking about that, then um, what we're called to is loving God with everything within us, but also with all the powers that we have. Uh, that includes um, economic power. We love God with how we how we use our resources, our economic resources. We love God with how we use our social connections, uh, our uh, our political power. If we if we're in some kind of position of authority, uh, that's part of the variness or the might or the power that we have. And the love of God has to direct and determine how we use that. So, it, so I guess the another way to say to summarize what I just said is that we're you're talking about not just God's love is uh, filling us, filling every corner of our being, but it's also filling out every corner of our lives. It, it's uh, it has to be comprehensive. Our lives have to be comprehensive, comprehensively lives that are devoted to loving God. Yeah, that's helpful and and challenging at the same time. To to state the obvious, I mean, we um, have these abilities strength um influence etc but they're all hugely limited there are a limited amount of things that we can do with our time with our energies with our efforts and 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 the call is is to kind of use them up to to expend them um on the lord which is uh yeah just an, an enormous challenge um i'd be interested to hear your thoughts i mean you you touched on it um you, you, yourself, Jeff, the link between the the fact that the Lord is one and this kind of um, commitment to be utterly obsessed with and, and saturated in in God's law. Um, I, I'd be interested to kind of uh, know what you think that the connection is there. Well, I'm, I'm not Jeff, but I'd, I'll chime in with a, a couple of thoughts. Um, I, I like the way Jeff put it that God is the one and only God for Israel. God is God is the one for Israel in the way that uh, a husband is the one for his wife. Uh, that's, that kind of marital language, I think, is appropriate. Given the covenant context and some of the other language that's used uh, to describe Israel's relationship to Yahweh. Uh, so I think single-minded devotion to him because he is the one and only for Israel. It also occurred to me at uh, the... The Shema, uh, the first statement of the Shema in verse four, hear Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. Our God is one is one word. There's six words. I think there, there seems to be a kind of chiastic relationship. Hear Israel, Yahweh, our God is the center, Yahweh, one. The assertion of the second part of the verse is clearly that Yahweh is one, but the structure also suggests that Israel the Israel is the beginning of the structure. Uh, echad, the one, is the last word in the in the verse, and that suggests that the oneness of God demands a kind of corresponding or 
reflective, a mimetic, a mimesis of that oneness for Israel. Israel has to be one because God is one. Uh, and that means that Israel is to be unified people, but it also means it has to be single in purpose. Because God is one, Israel exists to be devoted to the service of this one God. Israel exists in, uh, and uh, its whole life is organized by its its uh, love and devotion to this one God. Seems to me that this is something that's picked up later on in Scripture, particularly in you might think about Paul's discussion in Galatians about the coming of the one, um, the one people, and the need for there to be one seed. If on account of there being one God, um, might also think of Zechariah 14, verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The unity of God requires a corresponding unity in his people. And so in contrast with the um, the lords of the gods of the nations, where you'd have all these local deities and these um, regional cults, in Israel, there has to be one center of worship, which corresponds with the unity of God. And there has to be a unity of the people that um, is, in some way, connected with the unity of God. We can think about the way that the church is supposed to express a unity that um, is related to the unity of Father, Son, and Spirit and grounded upon the unity of Father, and Son, and Spirit. We see that in Christ's Upper Room Discourse in, in John. And I think also there's another aspect of this that has often fascinated me as a line of thought, which was first introduced to me by David Foreman, who talks about the way that when you are relating to God in a monotheistic setting, there is a far greater fittingness of an effective relationship with God in contrast to merely a transactional relationship, which you'd have in more polytheistic contexts where you're transacting with certain gods for certain benefits. And um, there are gods in competition with each other. There are different services that each god might offer to you, areas in which they would be most useful. But when you're relating to the one god, there's something about the, that relationship that can be, I suppose, effective in a way that you can't be if you have many different gods that you're transacting with, and each god could be displaced by another if they provided better services. There's a sort of polygamy um, corresponding with the, um, the um, polytheism that when you're relating to one god, there is a sort of monogamous faithfulness that is inherent in that sort of relationship. And so the effective element is given far greater scope than it would have within a polytheistic setting. Yeah. I, boy, I like both of those, what Peter and Elser said. Um, and kind of back to uh, the Lord is one being the one and only for Israel, this marital kind of relationship. And yet at the same time, Yahweh is one. It, Yahweh is his character is is uh, we know his character. We know who he is. We know his personality, if you will. He is stable. He is and he's he's unified. Um, it's it's it, I I think it was Arnold. I'm not sure. I I don't have that part with me. Who said 
who notice that in ancient Near Eastern world and in polytheistic religions in general, the gods tended to be fluid. <laughs> they their personalities could shift from one day to the next, depending on, you know, their interaction maybe with other gods or with human beings. And here you have the unity of Yahweh. God doesn't, God doesn't change. He doesn't have multiple manifestations of himself. Uh, he's not worshiped in different ways, depending on what you want from him or what, you know, season it might be. And we, we have a very carefully, delineated character of Yahweh as presented in Deuteronomy by Moses. In fact, this, I think, is one of the striking things about Deuteronomy is this constant repetition of who Yahweh, what Yahweh has done, what, what is, how he works, what he's, what his character is like uh, over and over again. It's the whole, it's the foundation of the law. It's how the law, it's how it begins and it's how it's, constantly you know situated within the the one definable you know experienced character of god and as elser said because of that you can you can love him you can have you can have affections and emotions towards him um you can devote your whole self your whole soul body and mind and strength and powers to him and, and in a way that you can't do with other lesser deities of the nations. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, particularly the idea of that link between kind of a monotheistic uh, God and and um, and uh, a fitting source of adoration. You know, it, it reminded me, Alistair, as you were talking about that for uh, Hosea too, because I've been going through Hosea not so long ago and and um you know Israel are in a bad um state and and it, it says uh you know verse uh seven then she shall say I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now and um and God doesn't accept that it's this very sort of casual um repentance you know I've, I've had my time with Baal and it wasn't so great so I'll I'll, I'll go back to Yahweh, and so it sort of it goes on. You know, God, God says, I, I you know, I, I won't accept that. I will take back my my grain. You know, because she hasn't realised what's what's going on, and and um, it yeah to state the obvious. You know, God doesn't want to be worshipped as the best in like some pantheon of of gods. Although I mean, he's the best, but he wants to be worshipped as the the one, the only one, the only one who is any um kind of really fitting um, object of love and devotion and, and adoration. The words that have been occurring to me as, uh, as we've been discussing this is integrity. Think about what, what does it mean for God to be one? God's integrity in the love that he has for Israel. He's got love for the fathers that persists. He made promises that he's going to be faithful to. His love for Israel has this kind of integrity and faithfulness to it. And again, that's that needs to be uh, reflected in the way that Israel responds to him. Israel's love also has to be single-minded and has to have that kind of integrity. Yeah, again, I think the, the marital kinds of context, the marital kind of uh, analogies make a, make a lot of sense of this. Uh, the other thing, of course, uh, we uh, the first command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your might is comprehensive. 
as we've discussed. And then it goes on to talk about the way you communicate this love. The words are on your heart. The words that come from Moses are to be on the heart of Israel so that they can teach. Again, that dynamic of teaching. Uh, Moses teaches so that he makes teachers. Uh, and then the pedagogy that's described in verse 7 to 9 is just absolutely comprehensive. The Israelites are supposed to receive the word, put it on their hearts, and they're supposed to talk of them to their sons in the house and on the way. They're supposed to talk about them whether they're whether they're sitting or they're walking or whether they're lying down or rising up in all kinds of settings, in all kinds of places. They wear reminders of the law of God, their, their uh, clothing. Is uh, uh, signifies their devotion to the Lord and to His Word, uh, and even their public life. Uh, Jeff alluded to this, but you have uh, the law, the words of the law, written on the doorposts of the house and on the gates. And I take gates here to be city gates. So there's kind of this uh, comprehensive, there's a comprehensive civilization that's implied by the command to love God and to communicate this love to your sons. You want to surround your sons, saturate your sons, not just with the words that you're speaking to them, but everywhere they look. The way that the the way that the uh, the, the house is designed, as Jeff said, the way that the the church the church is designed, the architecture of the church. Maybe it takes a step further and think about where does the church where is the church found within the city, because that also communicates something about uh, the priority of love for God. Uh, and you think about, I think you think through this. The implications of this pedagogy, and it's you're looking at a an entire civilization that's been shaped in order to be testimony to the love of love for God, and to be a constant reminder of uh, the the demand for loving God. One other detail in that uh, I've fastened on. I don't uh, if, I'd be curious to know if you have uh, opposing opinions about this. But I think it's in verse seven. Uh, the word you shall teach. The verb for teach there. Teach them diligently to your sons. Uh, I think it's teach diligently. That whole phrase is not the normal word for teach, but rather a word that uh, elsewhere means something like sharpen, sharpening arrows or sharpening swords. And some commentators have suggested an alternative verb there that would make more immediate sense as a verb for teaching. But I like the idea that uh, the teach of the pedagogy is supposed to sharpen your sons uh, and that by teaching in the house and along the way, when you're sitting and when you're standing and when you're walking, when you're lying down and surrounding them with signs of uh, Torah, that the aim of that is to sharpen them, to make them, as it were, weapons in the Lord's arsenal. Uh, that that seems to fit the setting. They're going to go into the land. They're going to conquer the land. Uh, they're going to fight against Canaanites. In order to do that effectively, they need to be sharp. They, they need to be uh, well-honed weapons uh, and that that happens when is when their fathers teach in this diligent way. Yeah, other commentators will talk about this being uh, like drilling, uh, which might relate in our context at least to military situation where the kids are drilled constantly recite. You are uh, inculcating into this generation. You're drilling them in order to prepare for battle. I, I guess that it's also uh, about just repetition repetition being the essence of learning is just over and over again with children but also i note here too um as you said peter this passage is well you didn't say this but i'm going to say this this passage is often used as a proof text for that parents uh 
have the the primary and sometimes the sole responsibility for training their children. But in this text, you you've got them not just uh, you, you're talking about in the house. You're talking about that you're talking to your children with this, but you're also writing them on your gates. So as you said, there's a political dimension to this. There's a, there's a, a responsibility of elders at the gate, of rulers, of authorities, of, uh, of those who have cultural authority to also inculcate these things, to, to recite them, to teach them, to talk about them in relationship, not just to family matters, but also to uh, matters that we would call matters of state, uh, matters of the city, matters of whatever community you're in. So these words, and, and, and I think, I'm not sure what you guys think, but I think these words here, uh, verse six, probably refer to the Shema and to verse five also, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your might. So those words actually need to be not just on the lips of parents, but also the whole community. I, this, like, I think Peter, you said this earlier. This is this is about creating a civilization, not just a a bunch of nuclear families that are teaching their children at home. Yeah, Jeff, it takes a village. If you want to raise a child, it takes a village. Well, I mean, you know, I hate to say it, but it's not entirely wrong, as we all know. <laughs> uh, and even though Hillary said it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. One one other thing I wanted to uh, highlight about uh, this before we move on to some of the later sections of the chapter, I was struck by the echoes of the fifth word that are surrounding this. Verse two says, you keep these uh, rituals and commandments, these judgments, so that your days may be prolonged. That's the promise of the fifth word. If you honor your father and mother, your days will be long in the land. Also, verse three, uh, listen guard to do it, that it may be well with you. Again, that's the language of the fifth word. Uh, and then goes on to talk about uh, loving the Lord your God and communicating that love to your sons and your son's son, which is interesting. You have the connection between parents and children, between fathers and sons in the fifth word uh, and also here, but the it, as it were, the direction is, is uh, it works in the opposite direction. So in the fifth word, it's addressed to sons doing honor to their parents. Here, the same promises, prolonged life in the land, things going well with you, but the command that's given is directed to the sons. So uh, those fifth commandment promises are not just of children honoring parents, but also of parents communicating to children. Of course, parents communicating to children is also a way of honoring the fathers because what you're communicating is something that you yourself received. So there's a there's a kind of retrospective. If you're communi- if you're teaching your children diligently, then you're also honoring. In my case, I had two parents that two believing parents, believing grandparents. They they all encouraged me to be faithful to the Lord. I'm passing on that heritage to, heritage to my children. So even even when I'm looking to the future, I'm also honoring the past. But it's interesting that you have that dynamic with with the promises. Uh, the fifth commandment promises require the, uh, a, a past orientation, but also a future orientation. The other thing that um, I think is is interesting about verse three, especially setting the context again for the Shema and the command to love, uh, is the language of creation that we talked touched on last time. 
that it may go well with you. That's just the verb form of tov, which means good, that it may be good with you, that you may multiply greatly. And then you're going into the land that's uh, flowing with milk and honey into a good land. So what Moses envisions for Israel, if they hear, guard, and do what the Lord has commanded, then they will recover something of an Edenic life within the land. Things will go well. It will be good. They will multiply as man was created to multiply. They'll be in a land that's uh, flowing with milk and honey. So uh, the the land is going to be an Eden land if Israel uh, listens and guards the word of the Lord. Yeah, it's interesting all those details about how um, the land will be full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns you did not dig and and, and so on. It's just an extraordinary statement of God's uh, grace to Israel. I mean, if you think when Abraham went in, it was probably at, well, at some point it overlapped with a, a long time of famine. And historically, there may have been a time of famine um, around about a very severe time. Um, it, it seems biblically that the land had emptied. And so Abraham went into a very hostile uh, environment, had to dig his own um, wells, et cetera, work out where to sojourn. Here, here they're going in and the Lord will drive the people out and, and everything will then be um, set for them. And so there's that very interesting um, contrast between the land that they um, go into and, and the land in which uh, Abraham entered. Yeah, you're looking ahead to verses uh, 10 through 15. Uh, or even 10 through 19, which is uh, uh, following the Shema, following this command to communicate the the words of the Lord and the love of the Lord to their children. There's this warning. Uh, when you go into the land and you've received all these things, then be careful not to forget. And uh, James, earlier you, you mentioned the difficulty of loving God with all that we have. You were thinking about the limitations, that uh, we have limited powers that's not to even account for our sinful tendency to love other things and to uh, and to pursue other gods besides uh, our Lord. So um, that's one side of it. But even, even the good things that Israel is going to receive, <laughs> all of the good of the land that you listed out just a moment ago, is a temptation or a test. Uh, this is going to come up a couple of times in Deuteronomy, that uh, the very plenty that they receive puts them in a perilous position of forgetting the Lord, forgetting the giver, delighting in all the things that they have, and then beginning to get puffed up. This is what chapter eight is going to say. They begin to get puffed up and think, well, it's by our own power and by our own hand that we achieved all these things. When in fact, uh, none of it is because they're inheriting a developed land. Uh, They're inheriting a land with cities and houses and vineyards and cisterns and orchards of olive trees and so on. All of this has been done by the wicked who is an inheritance stored up by the wicked for the righteous. Uh, but that that very plenty is also a temptation that will di- can distract us from love for God. And the temptation, of course, is to follow other gods in kind of kind of the way that we uh, were talking about. Alistair suggested that polytheistic systems um, uh, encourage uh, the incentives are toward a kind of transactional relationship with the gods. Uh, you you find the god that can best serve a particular need. Uh, and then you um, you're devoted to him in order to meet that need, but then you find another God who can meet a different need, and so on. Uh, and that's the temptation that the Lord is uh, warning against: that they will be tempted to follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around them. And uh, one of the ways that they avoid that is by remembering 
the nature of the God that they have because he is one, because he is Israel's only one and only God. He is a jealous God. That's, that's also marital language. Uh, that's the language of a husband being protective of the exclusive attention of his wife or the wife being a, 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 a jealous of the exclusive attention of her husband. Uh, the Lord has chosen Israel. He's loved Israel. He's brought them out of slavery. He's, he's entered into a kind of marital covenant with them. And now he's going to protect that relationship. And anything that violates, that violates that relationship is going to be met with his wrath. If there are uh, external threats to that relationship, that covenant with Israel, he's going to, he's going to break out in wrath against that. But when, it, when Israel herself becomes a problem and becomes the, uh, the one that provokes anger and provokes jealousy, then Israel will become an object of the Lord's anger. The Lord's uh, specific example, the warning, includes a reference to an event back that's recorded back in the book of Exodus. Uh, when Israel came out of Egypt, they didn't have any water. They complained against the Lord, uh, and um, the Lord uh, provided water in the wilderness. But the, they put the Lord to the test, and so the place was called Massa, which is based on the word, the Hebrew word for test. Then the, the the situations are kind of diametrically opposed because the situation that's being described here is a situation where they put God to the test because they have so much. Uh, at Massa, they were put God to the test because they had nothing and they needed they needed water, and so they they complained against Him. But the, uh, whether in plenty or in want, you're you're facing this danger of putting the Lord to the test and uh, ignoring His commandments, getting proud uh, or despairing. Uh, of the Lord, if He's not providing what what you need, yeah, that'll come out later when we talk about blessings and curses in Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty eight, where, or even in the Song of Moses, when the people grew fat and sleek uh, and didn't think they needed the Lord, and that apparently is testing God. I mean, I've given you all these things, now you're going to test me by forgetting to be faithful and loyal to me. That seems to be. The test is, can you, not only can you uh, endure through hardship without water, without bread, um, but can you also endure the temptations of wealth and blessing and peace? And that's interesting, Peter, you mentioned that, because that's certainly true here uh, in this passage. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen that before. And it has obvious applications if you're, if you're preaching on this passage um, especially in a in a Western context, where uh, we have a heritage of Christianity that's given us many blessings, and we have a, a huge a huge amount of wealth, we've inherited a huge amount of wealth. I'm surrounded by things I didn't build. Uh, I didn't plant any of the trees in my yard. I didn't build the house that I'm in. Uh, I didn't I didn't uh, dig the well that uh, that provides the water for the house. I didn't do anything, and. Uh, course i'm paying for it but it's still something that comes to me as a as a gift so in in that kind of in that kind of setting when you have a when you have a life of plenty then particularly there needs to be this uh constant reminder not to get not to forget not to uh again and not to become proud think that uh, we've achieved any of these things by ourselves and apparently there's a recognition here in verse 20 that it's this second generation who's going to inherit all of this Who's going to be particularly tempted because they weren't they weren't the ones who fought they weren't the ones who experienced even the you know the generation before their fathers 
who came out of Egypt. Uh, and so they're going to have all these good things. They're going to have this freedom. And that's what's emphasized in verses 20 through 23 is the Lord brought you into this land. He's given you freedom. Uh, don't take it for granted. Remember, the, what's the meaning of all these testimonies and statutes? What's that mean, all these rules that's command you? Well, it means that you've been freed from Pharaoh, from the iron furnace, from slavery, from servitude, and brought into a land uh, where you, you um, <clears throat> that he swore to your fathers, but also a land that's flowing with milk and honey, and that all these good things are given to you. And I, I'm again, I'm again fascinating here this inter, this interaction, this back and forth between love and fear. So in verse 24, and Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes to fear Yahweh your God. Um, there, there seems to be no real conflict in the mind of Moses in, in Deuteronomy between fear and love. They're like two sides of the same coin or something. And yet at the same time, when you get, uh, you know, well, all, everybody always quotes the first John three or four passage uh there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. I can't remember all of it. Something about punishment is associated with fear. Uh, and there's no, if if you're worried about punishment, you're not mature or something like that. So uh, there, but, and I'm not sure what to do with that. I don't know what you guys think, but again, I, I think it, in in my mind, the way I've explained this to, to my people is it's like two sides of the same coin. Uh, you can certainly love somebody that you also fear, just like a son loves his father, but he has a, a certain respect and appropriate and proper fear of his father, too. And I'm not sure if that actually works with husbands and wives, since we were talking about the marital context. But but again, the, it, it's striking to me that fear and love are almost interchangeable here, although I don't think they mean the same thing. I just think that uh, Moses can move from one to the other effortlessly. Yeah, fear, fear does come up, of course, in Ephesians 5 in a marital context. It's translated as respect, but the verb in, in Ephesians 5 is fear. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that uh, so that that's that's still keeping with the same thing, and that you know, bringing it up in a marital context explicitly indicates that it's they're compatible with each other. That uh, there's a there's a relationship of uh, that that mixes uh, a certain kind of fear with a with a uh, with love. I think a couple things about that last section of chapter six uh, that you brought up. Uh, it's the son asking about the testimonies, the rituals, the judgments. Uh, and as you pointed out, the answer is not in terms of some kind of summary rule. Uh, my instinct, if somebody asked me this question, my instinct would be to start reciting the 10 words or uh, maybe the two great commandments or something like that, point them to the Sermon on the Mount. But um, the answer that's given to the son is in terms of their liberation from Egypt. So, um, you know, uh, it it uh, it foreshadows what Jesus says in the his polemic against the scribes and Pharisees, the hypocrites in Matthew 23, that uh, they tithed mint and dill and cumin and they neglect the weightier matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and truth. That's what the law is actually about. 
the law is actually about liberation from Egypt. It's about a, a Lord who brings his people out from slavery. Uh, that's what it, that's what it means. And and uh, in in that summary, the Exodus and the conquest, the Exodus and the entry into the land are kind of merged together. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in. He rescues us from Egypt to give us the land. And that's what the law is about. It's about what the Lord has done. And that obviously has implications. Again, Moses gives all kinds of rules, but at the heart of it all, it's not a set of rules. It's about what the Lord has done for Israel and how Israel is to uh, live in love and fear before him. We have a couple of tests connected with water in the book of Exodus. Master is second. Um, the first one is in um, Mara, where the Lord tests his people. And in that context, um, there's the bitter waters made sweet so that they can drink them. But it makes me think of the test of jealousy that we have in Numbers 5, where the bitter water is given to drink, and the bitter water reveals the bitter heart of adultery. And here, Israel has clearly been unfaithful in the past, but the Lord makes the waters sweet and promises them deliverance as they trust him. And so that initial test is the Lord testing his people. But then in Massa, the people test the Lord. And as in the case of um, what happened earlier on at Mara, there is a sort of presumptive um, unfaithfulness in the other party that occasions this test. And as we um, see the way that Massa is looked back upon in places like Psalm 95, it's not just a matter of, um, you can't test the Lord. That's The Lord pulls rank and says, you can't test me. Um, I'm the Lord. But it's more a matter of, you should know the Lord's character. He has proven himself to you again and again. Um, today, if you hear your voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Um, the Lord has proven his character to us amply, his faithfulness to his covenant and his faithfulness to us as his people. And for us to test him um, on the sort of presumption of unfaithfulness, of untruth and not keeping his word is a fragrant violation of that covenant. And so that testing has maybe a bit more of the weight of um, the presumption of marital unfaithfulness or covenant unfaithfulness in the other party. That's a helpful qualification, I think, yeah. So God could be tested, would you say, Alistair, in, insofar as we can hold him to his word and stand forth on, on uh, stand firmly on his promises and those kind of things, but not tested in, yeah, in that sense of um, presuming that he is he's unfaithful. Yeah, that's really helpful, Alistair. Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, one, one last thing I wanted to highlight in the last section, verses 20 through 25 here, uh, uh, Michael Fishbane has an article on this passage, and he points out uh, the use of the second person in verse 20. Uh, what do the testimonies and statutes and commandments which uh, the Lord commanded you? Uh, sometimes uh, it's Yahweh, our God, our God in, in verse 20. My, my translation just says Yahweh. But it's um, 
the son is asking his father and using the second person. So there's uh Fishbane suggests that there's this kind of distance between generations that's being highlighted. Uh, and what's this, what the father, the father's response, the parents response is to Fishbane actually uses a uh, Rosenstockian language. Uh, the son conceives of, in, of himself as a distemporary and the father's response is intended to make him a contemporary uh, to merge their time frames, so that uh, as as we talked about, I think in the last episode, then you had kind of this merging of the eyewitness experience with the reception of testimony to those who were actually eyewitnesses, and so the 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 instruction, the pedagogy, the the catechesis is designed to bring the son who says, "Your God." To a point where he's saying "our God" and and uh, merging those two time frames and uh, healing healing as it were the breach between generations and making the two generations contemporaries of each other. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.